0: $5 minimum
1: balance required. Welcome to Next on the
2: Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA
3: players, legends and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf,
2: the PGA Tour Superstore, Golf Pride. Two Under, Zexio, Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, Making the
3: Game More Fun, Bionic Gloves, and the McLemore Club. Experience life above the clouds. Now, here's your host,
2: Chris Mascaro.
4: Good evening, folks, and welcome to Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. I appreciate you joining us tonight. Got a great show on tap for you. My first guest is going to be one of the best ball strikers of all time, and that's Tim Simpson. Tim went four times on the regular tour and was named comeback player of the year on the PGA and the Champions Tours. I'll talk to Tim about rivalries in golf, and were they as crazy as the Brooks and Bryson one is now? Did we just not hear about it because social media wasn't a thing back when Tim was out on tour? We'll talk about that. What it was like being out on tour at a time when the Metal Woods were first becoming a thing. How often did he have his A-game during the course of a season? And how much different does a change in golf balls make? Tim will join me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a return visit from PGA Tour caddy Kip Henley. Kip is currently up in Idaho for a Corn Fairy Tour event, so we'll hear about that. Plus, we'll talk about his home city of Chattanooga, Tennessee, and the growing number of great golf courses that are in that area. I'll also get his thoughts on the Ryder Cup, and then as a caddy, how do you go about finding a player who cares about you and your time with your family as much as they do about themselves? Kip will join me about 25 minutes from now. Following him, I'll be joined by Tom Stankowski, Paul's older brother, Tom was an All-American at Arizona State. He and Billy Mayfair formed quite a duo when they were both there. So we'll talk some college golf, plus his win at the Canadian Tour Championship back in 2008, and what he did to Paul that Paul turned out to be a Cowboys fan. Looking forward to having Tom as part of the show. He'll join me about 45 minutes from now. Then we'll round out the show with a visit from World Golf Hall of Famer Dennis Walters. Dennis is another guy who had a great college career. He played at North Texas State at a time when he regularly competed against Tom Kite, Ben Crenshaw, and Bruce Litsky, who were at the University of Texas and the University of Houston, respectively, at the same time Dennis was in school. Dennis finished 11th in the 1971 U.S. Amateur. We'll hear about that. Then shortly after college, a golf cart accident left Dennis paralyzed from the waist down, but he didn't let that stop him. We'll hear his inspirational story when he joins me about an hour from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Tee. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, I want to remind you about our friends over at the Macklemore. You guys know my buddies and I. We went up there for our annual golf trip, and it was simply amazing. Everything about the place is first class. We had great accommodations. The practice facility is wonderful. The on-premise restaurant is called The Craig. It had outstanding food and great service. And the course lived up to every expectation that we had for it. I can't say enough great things about the place. Go online, folks, to themaclemore.com to see for yourself how spectacular it is. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones. And one of my guests tonight, PJ Torcaddy Kip Henley, said, Outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. And Golf Digest agreed, naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000. See why we're all saying that by going online and checking out the resort at themaclemore.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by our friends over at TaylorMade and their TP5 and TP5X golf balls. High draw, check. Low fade, check. Bump and run, out of the sand or flop shot, check, check, and check. No matter what shot you need to pull off, there's one ball that's better than them all, and that's the new TP5 and TP5X from TaylorMade. With a newly redesigned dimple pattern that decreases drag and increases lift, it's the number one ball in golf no matter the shot. So whether you need to hit it high over the trees, under, or even through them, hit TP5 or TP5X, the one ball designed to handle it all. Check them out online by going to taylormadegolf.com for more information. Okay, now back in making his fifth appearance with me here on Next on the Tee is one of the all-time great ball strikers, Tim Simpson. Tim is from here in Atlanta, played his college golf at the University of Georgia where he lettered in 1975 and 76. During his time there, Tim was named All-SEC, All-American, and a college all-star. He turned pro in 1977. He won four times on the PGA Tour at the 1985 Southern Open, the 1989 USF&G Classic, and back-to-back years at the Walt Disney World Oldsmobile Open in 89 and 90. He also won the Georgia Open five times and the Casserot World Championship over in France. He was named the Comeback Player of the Year in 1989. He had two top 10 finishes in majors, both coming in 1990 at the U.S. Open and the PGA Championship. That year, he was named the Georgia Professional Athlete of the Year. In 2004, he was inducted into the State of Georgia Sports Hall of Fame. 2006, he was inducted into the Georgia State Golf Association Hall of Fame and named Comeback Player of the Year on the Champions Tour. He's a great guy, and I'm very honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Tim, how are you, my friend? I'm
3: fantastic, Chris. Great to be with you again.
4: Tim, I got to be honest. After the last time you and I communicated, I got very encouraged. It seemed like you were starting to feel better physically, and maybe there's some more golf in your future. Give us an update. How you feeling, my friend?
3: Well, I'm feeling better. Uh, I guess as good as a guy that's had three back surgeries could be, but uh, I think when I was on your show last year, it had been uh, close to four years since I played, and uh, as of now, it's been Four years, 11 months, but nine days ago I played nine holes with two of my young juniors and their dad that I work with, and, uh, oh, my gosh, it was just fantastic. The back didn't like the driver, but, uh, you know, the two kids were, you know, they're 11 and 14, and I'm not sure they knew the significance of it to me, but they're such wonderful kids, and I teach them, and it's like I wanted to give them a gift if so I could play again, I want to be with them, and they got to see a few Simpson iron shots. So it was fun.
4: Are you feeling well enough to say, you know what? Hey, I might be able to get out there and play once in a while now.
3: Well, you know that's that, that's my wish and my prayer. You know, I don't ever care to play again competitively, even on a state level. I mean, I'm 65 now, but um, to be able to play with my granddaughters or friends or my students. Yeah, You know, that's what it's about to me, because as you know, you know, uh, if you hadn't played at the highest level, you can't really teach course management. No matter how great a teacher you are of the golf swing or of the short game, you know, you've got to be able to, to show them how you got to be a top player. And uh, it's just, it's, it's thrilling for me, and they're coming, you know, they're coming along fantastic. I'm really, really excited about them.
4: Chip, I want to go back to your time in college. I've had the privilege of having your roommate, Chip, Beck on the show a couple of times over the last 12 months, and uh, I know you guys had a great relationship. Talk about what you remember about teaming up with Chip.
3: Uh, Chip and I were roommates, as you said, and, and he is absolutely one of the finest humans God ever created. And uh, I can honestly say that in our entire good gracious, it's Believe it or not, like 47 years of golf together, um, there has never been one second of jealousy between us. Um, I can remember uh, he was leading the L.A. Open. I I won before he did on tour, and he was leading the L.A. Open. His brother Albert was caddying for me, and they called me and asked me, would I go to dinner with him, and I said, sure. And uh Chip was using the restroom and Albert said to him he is scared to death. Not scared to play bad, just nervous. And uh we talked it out and I said, It's your time. You're gonna win. And I was kinda middle of the field, uh, didn't play great that week and caught a courtesy card to the airport and I was uh walking to the gate when he tapped in on
5: eighteen and I just started falling.
4: And Tim, the times that I've got to spend with Chip, he has never had anything but positivity coming out of whatever he has to say. The guy's just the the most positive person on the planet. Even when we were talking about the Ryder Cup at Kiowa and the bugs that were getting all over them, biting them, getting in their mouths, all that sort of stuff. He had something positive to say about that. Talk about Chip's positivity.
3: Well, you know, I've been been asked for forever, is Chip? really as positive as they say and i said well put it this way if he cut his hand off or his arm off in an accident today and i found out about it and called him in the in the hospital room he'd say i've been swinging the club one-handed and i swear that other arm was hindering me all these years (laughs) that's how positive chip is i mean there's nothing on earth that he's not positive about you know uh you know i mean we'd be at a tournament and it would be a thousand degrees you know like memphis or somewhere the 100 percent humidity and 100 degrees and everybody be complaining and kip would be like man i love this loosens me up so good (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome uh uh wonderful man one of the greatest humans god ever created in my
4: opinion tim i want to get your thoughts on rivalries out on tour a lot is being made right now about the brooks and bryson rivalry i know with social media this stuff kind of gets blown up out of proportion at times did you ever have to deal with anything like that did you see any rivalries when you were out playing on tour that maybe we didn't hear about because social media wasn't a thing back then
3: might have been in my generation, but I don't remember them per se. You know, it wasn't like, you know, Norman and Watson or something like that. The one that sticks out to me was uh, Paul Azinger and Chevy Ballesteros, where I believe it was the Ryder Cup you're talking about at Kiowa, where Azinger just basically said he cheated. And from that day on, there was no love lost between those two. Uh, That's one that sticks out in my mind.
4: Tim, when you first got out on tour, I don't think Metal Woods had become a thing yet. TaylorMade came out with the first ones, I believe, in 1979. When did you first start testing Metal Woods, and when did you make the switch over and put one into play?
3: I can remember Ron Streck from Oklahoma uh signed with Taylor when Taylor was just a start-up company and he had one on the range at the Texas Open in San Antonio and I'm like what in the heck is that thing it it looked like you know the old metal drivers from the driving ranges you know that were you know just you know just built to last kind of deal and I thought I thought it was crazy and then uh Mizuno made a great uh, metal head called an MSX, and they also had a, a, a one-plus wood, which we used as a fairway wood. And you couldn't hit it real high, but, man alive, this thing you could hit 250-yard three woods back when 230, 235 was long, the old ball and stuff. And that's what I did all my winning with in 89 and 90. You know, I won three times and lost two playoffs. It was with Mizuno uh, Woods. And they were, Dr. Joe Braley, who created the precision shaft, explained to me why they were superior. They're basically a metal a wood version or metal wood version of a perimeter-weighted iron. And Karsten had explained to me years earlier why perimeter weighting made the club more forgiving. So Dr. Braley then explained to me when the metal heads came out how they created a horseshoe effect at impact. And if you watch in ultra-slow motion, not not on your phone, but ultra-slow motion, you know, the head does tremendous distortions, vibrations of frequency at impact. And what the metal head did was it was like a horseshoe, and it went back, and it, like, ricocheted off that, and the head would stay straight coming through, whereas you would look at that with a persimmon-headed wood, and it would just be violent distortion. So, I mean, there
5: was no doubt they went straight, no doubt.
4: Tim, were you always custom fit for your clubs during your college and pro days, or when did you first get professionally fit?
3: professional fitting back then was totally different than now you know amateurs laugh at me now when i tell them you know the way we did it if i was playing with a new shaft and and trying a different tipping having them cut the a half an inch shorter which stiffened it and this and that you and i were buddies or chip was on the range and i'd say chipper come here for a second watch this see if this ball is spinning you how's this ball flying you know there were no such things as uh you know, uh, launch monitors back then that that gave spin rate, you know, and and that's how you played it. And, and, you know, when I was on the champions tour, I think it was the year before my career ended injuries. Obviously I live down here at Lake Oconee still. And uh, they had the Taylor made kingdom over at Reynolds. And I went over there and they're when I hit my driver, they're like, Timbo, you're kidding us. Right. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, this thing is spinning like 2300 and I'm like, so? They're like, do you know how much yardage you're losing? I said, did you not see where I finished in driving accuracy? I finished third, and I think they <laughs> messed up. I should have won. You know, I said, you know, I don't care if you give me a driver I can hit 15 yards farther, but it goes in the woods, you know. I want something that goes straight. So. Yeah, it was totally different back then, totally different.
4: Tim, we've heard a lot about how much better the golf ball is now versus when you played out on tour. To me, it's like going from hitting rocks to Super Bowls. How did the progression feel to you as the golf ball evolved over time?
3: Well, it, it, you use the exact term that I use on a daily basis, Chris. The current balls are like Super Bowls. They are so hot. It is crazy. And amateurs want to say, Oh, it's all the technology with the clubs. Let me tell you what, it you can't tell me that it's not the ball. Jack Nicholas has been saying it since the eighties. And you got guys like Ricky Fowler that are five foot eight that are flying at two ninety in the air, hitting at three fifteen with roll. I mean, come on. It's crazy. My from the time I was 15 years old till the time I retired on the Champions Tour at 55 or 56, my 7-iron was 155, period. And the guys today are hitting 190 and 200. You know, and, and it, I understand and I would be the first to say that the kids today are incredibly fit. I mean, they're all working with trainers. They're working with nutritionists. They're stretching. They're doing yoga this and that, but come on. The the average club head speed on the PGA Tour in 1990 was 111. The average club head speed on the PGA Tour today is, guess what, 111, 112. So you tell me how the heck they're hitting at 50 and 60 yards farther. You know, we had, we had bombers during my era, But the way I was raised to play golf and growing up before I had formal teaching, dad would always say, son, let the club do the work, you know, and if you remember, I had pretty pretty nice rhythm, you know, uh, when I got quick, that's, that's when I was home on Friday night,
1: missing the cut.
4: (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what I was told when I was growing up.
1: Yeah.
3: Chris, I think the game's going in the wrong direction, and I I have not met Bryson DeChambeau. I'm sure he's a a super nice guy, and yes, he's very talented, but, you know, the bottom line, as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, it's still about getting it in the hole in the fewest number of strokes.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Rumor has it that's still how the game is played.
3: Well, you know, I've been out of the game. You know, I thought maybe they had changed the (laughs) game or something, you know, but. It's it's like every two years, you know, we, we have the Georgia Bulldog Letterman's Day and and uh you know, Kisner and Russell and Kirk and Brendan Todd, everybody comes back and Bubba and every time I get around Bubba I tell him I still hit it as far as you. It just takes me two times now. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: a driver and a full wedge. I can keep it up, with
1: Bubba.
4: <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Uh, Tim, did did you mess around with different equipment and different golf balls? You know, when you were on tour, did you, you know, let me, let me try this one, let me try that one, to find one that you like better, or or were you a, uh, a brand loyalist?
3: I, I was pretty much a brand loyalist. I left Titleist for Max Fly, and Titleist kind of never forgave me. Uh, although I went back with them on the Champions Tour, but um, I went I, I went with Ping I, back when Wilson was the company in the world. It was Callaway, TaylorMade, Ping combined. You know, I was with them early. You know, and then Ping approached me, and I'm I'm like. Well, send me a set in the off season and I'll hit them and I'll let y'all know, you know, and I hit them and it was like, wow, I kind of like these. And I felt like
5: with my great iron play, they made me that
3: much better because I didn't miss hit many irons, but if you had the most forgiving club in the world on top of that, it was like, this is a no brainer, but you know, Invariably, over the years, I still t- hear, hear stories of guys that worked at the factory. People would come into the factory. With, you know, Carson had a, a a rule that he would work on anybody's club. didn't matter if it were Made, Calway, whatever. You know, he would have his guys work on them free of charge. But then, obviously, the staff players, you know, they rolled out the carpet for us. And every year during the Phoenix Open, you know, I'd drive 20 minutes over to to the factory. And I'd get my grips changed and my loss and lies checked. And invariably, they'd tell me stories. They'd be like, you know, we've had 25 guys come through here in the last year that all say, seriously, tell us what Tim does different. What kind of secret does he have with his club? And they're like, we see him one time a year, and we change his grips, and we check his loss and lies. And they're like, oh, come on. And they're like, no, he don't mess with his club. And I just always, uh, even years before, you know, I'm avid archer. I love my archery. Years before I ever picked up a bow and arrow, I always said, you know, it's not the arrow, it's the Indian, you know. And, uh, you know, that's kind of in the same, you know, guys that blame their clubs are the same guys that blame their caddy. When they hit it fat, and it goes in the water. You know, and they're on TV yelling at their caddy and giving him a dirty look, like you pulled the wrong club. You know, what's the caddy gonna say on TV? No, you laid the side over it. You hit it fat. That's why I went in the water. You know. But I was I was never much of a tinker, Chris. I, I was just never much of a tinker. You know, I got my stuff, I played with it, and as long as I didn't get, get well cards from my banker, I knew I was doing good. <laughs>
4: Tim, in in this month's edition of Golf Magazine, uh, Sergio Garcia is interviewed, and he said he could be more creative back in the 90s and the early part of the 2000s than he can now, and that's something that he feels like is missing from today's game. You know, Players used to have to play with more imagination and and control their golf ball better, and you don't have to do that as much now because we talk about the golf ball. It, It goes farther and also goes straighter. Than it used to go. Is that a, is that a sort of a lost art, the artistry of of you know having imagination out on the golf course and then having to figure out how you were going to carve this one into this hole or that hole or around a bend and that sort of thing.
3: Great question and a great observation on your part, Chris. I take you, your your point on, but think about it in its simplest terms. The golf ball is designed to go straight. The clubs are designed to go straight. And you're trying to tell it, heck no, I'm going to cut you 25 yards around that corner. And they're both saying, Do you think you are? Watch this. You know, it. that's what blows me away about Bubba. How, how far he can cut it and draw it with seven irons, not driver and three wood. Because the ball is designed to go straight. The clubs are designed to go straight. You know, I mean, we're just a handful of players in the world that play professionally. These companies stay open, selling them to amateurs. Well, every amateur wants to hit it straighter. Every amateur wants to hit it farther. You know, and a a few years ago, um, you know, when the golf industry was stagnant and they had taken the metal woods to right on the line between legal and illegal with the trampoline effect of the faces and this and that, It was like somebody said, well, what are we going to do now? You know, we're going to go out of business because we can't do anything else. And some engineers said, well, why don't we do the same thing with irons? There you go. So now you got irons. you got seven irons that are five-and-a-half irons in my generation, and they take the weight out behind the face, lower the center of gravity, and the ball shoots up in the air and goes nine miles. But, you know, it's funny. I, I'll pick up one of my buddy's clubs, and it'll say 7-iron on it. But I'm like, I don't care what it says on it. It's a strong 6-iron. You know, I mean, my eyes have looked at golf ball, I mean, at clubs, since I was seven years old. You know, it's got seven stamped on it. But it's like, you know what, if I could play again, I'm too old for that technology. I'd have to learn how to play all over again. So... <laughs> I'm sticking with what I got. You can make fun of me about hitting short, but I'm sticking with what I got probably.
4: (laughs) Tim, just a couple more before I I let you go. And I'm curious, um, how many times during the course of of the season did you have your A game? How many tournaments did you play in that you had your A game? And were those the ones that you won? Or were you able to scratch it out and, you know, get a win or get a uh, top 10 with your B or C game?
3: Yeah, you could. I mean, as you know, I, I, I never – I was never considered a great putter. Obviously, you know how I hit the ball. But um, the, if I could change one thing in my career, if I could live it over again, I would never listen to anybody that said I couldn't putt, and I would never tell myself I couldn't putt. But I was getting back to your question – I would say, I tell amateurs all the time, what you don't understand is 97%, 98% of the time, we're not happy. Something is wrong. You know, either you're driving it great and ironing it great and you can't hit a tractor trailer with your putter or, you know, there's something missing. You're ironing it great, but you're driving it, you know, out of play here and there. There's really very few times that you're hitting on all cylinders and that shows you the crazy talent of say tiger, you know, that won, I think 20% of the time of all the tournaments he played in only onik has a higher winning percentage than tiger. She's 23%. But <clears throat> tiger was that good that he could have his B minus game and still win. And that's, it never happened for Tim Simpson, I don't think.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
4: Tim, I got to get a playing lesson before I let you go. And and I, I, really on the mental side of the game, for most of us weekend warriors, when we get on the tee or even when we're out in the fairway, we, we see where the trouble is. I don't want to hit it left here. I don't want to hit it right. There's trees. There's water over here, all that sort of stuff. Do you guys notice that sort of thing? Or are you so laser focused on where I want the ball to go? The the trouble that's out there it really isn't you know creeping into into your mind.
2: You know, there's
3: where I had an advantage, and Chris I can't explain it. Um, I was very ADHD as a child. Uh I was counting the minutes for recess. I wasn't paying any attention to the math equation. But how I overcame that and developed the level of focus and concentration that I had during my career, I don't know. But part of my great ball striking was even the great Hall of Famers, they were aiming at a tree or at the corner of a house. And I would, I could pick out one discolored limb or discolored leaf on that edge of that tree at 260 yards away, and that was my target. And I always believed in the old saying of aim small, miss small. And I believe it's just like archery. If you have a five-foot target and you're 50 yards away, if you aim at the target, what chance do you have of hitting the five-inch bullseye? Obviously, not much. But if you aim intently at the bullseye, you're pretty much guaranteed of hitting the target. So I think that kind of answers your question hopefully in that 120% of my focus was on where I wanted that ball to go. I mean, I just, it was like a laser. And I truly believe that the mind is just the strongest muscle in the body strongest, meaning most powerful. Maybe it's not as strong as your quads say, but I'm telling you what, if, if, if you focus on it intently with your mind, your subconscious will do everything within its power to get it there.
4: Tim, before I let you go, is there a way for our listeners to stay up to date with the great things you're doing? They may be listening in and have a junior player that needs to get lessons from Tim Simpson. Or they just, you know, they just love, you know, you as a as a golfer and as a person, they want to stay up to date with you. Is there a way for our our folks to do that?
3: Well, I'm not much on Facebook anymore, but I've got uh, the, the I've got two Tim Simpson accounts. The one with one of my granddaughters is how they can reach me on Facebook. And then I've uh, I took down my website this year because I'm too old to stand out in hundred degree heat. <laughs> Given lessons. but <laughs> but uh, if somebody w- wants some help, they can email me at timbogolf 99 at gmail dot com. That's a second email I have. Or they can call Harbor Club, and they'll give my number, and they can call me. And you know, I, I love teaching. I have, I mean, I was teaching at Ansley Golf Club when I was 14, teaching amateurs, you know, that I played with. I've just always been intrigued with it, and I think we overcomplicate it. I don't think I had the most beautiful swing in the world. Uh, Payne Stewart, Tom Percher, Tom Weissgolf were much prettier, but – I had one of the simplest swings in the world that repeated over and over and over. And that's what it's all about. Just
5: creating a golf swing that will repeat and then work on your
3: short game and putting and you got it made brother.
4: There you go. Tim, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. I always love spending time with you. I hope you'll come back and join me again soon.
3: Well, Chris, I always enjoy it, and I wish I could be on more than once a year. It's always fun, and you're a fantastic host and tremendously respected in the golfing community. And you got carte blanche with me. Pick up the phone and call me and come on down, and I'll help you. I'll try to play with you. I can't promise I will, but I'll sure help you free of charge.
4: I appreciate you, my friend. You're the best. Stay safe, Tim. All the best to you and your family. I look forward to catching up with you soon. Thank you so much, Chris. Great talking to you. Bye-bye. See you, Tim. That's a great Tim Simpson. Doesn't get better than that, folks. Holy cow. What a great guy. I told you right in his intro he's a great guy, and he showed you again why. But, um, boy, what a great career he had. He made downplay his swing a little bit. He had a beautiful swing. Such great tempo. That's why he was a great ball striker. So um, look forward to it. I'm going to take him up on that. I'm going to go down there and get a lesson from Tim. Hopefully uh, improve my game. Goodness knows. After what I put on display with my buddies up at the Macklemore, it needs a lot of help. And I'm sure Tim Simpson's the guy to do it. So I look forward to catching up with him again real soon. Okay, before I get to my next guest, Kip Henley, I want to remind you about a few of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? I'll tell you what, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented square toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour, an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent tests prove it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com, that's S-Q-A-I-R-Z.com, and get Squares' 30-day money-back guarantee. Use promo code DISTANCE for $20 off. Remember. Distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. And folks, I wouldn't tell you about it if I didn't experience it for myself. I've never felt more stable in my golf swing, which allows me to swing faster and launch it further. Squares, the distance golf shoe. I also want to give a shout out to another new sponsor, Bionic Loves. Do what you do better with Bionic Gloves. whether you're looking... To own the golf greens, improve your workouts, or get your hands dirty in the garden, Bionic Loves has you covered. Designed with a hand specialist, Bionic Loves feature patented innovations that help improve your grip. The strategically placed anatomical relief pads also prevent calluses and blisters, while the web and motion zones allow for greater dexterity and flexibility. Head over to BionicGloves.com to find the perfect glove to up your game. And I want to remind you about our friends over at Zexio. Back in 2001, Zexio Strixon began making clubs for men and women, and they've improved on those clubs every year since. I was fit for a set of Zexio 10 irons by a great fitter on their staff. He got me dialed in, and they feel and perform fantastically. They are by far the best irons I've ever played. They are light. I have picked up nearly 5 miles per hour in swing speed, and they're deadly accurate. Every part of Zexio Clubs are made exclusively for Zexio. Like I say, everything is light and balanced. Swing weights are made to give us the highest smash factors. The best part of getting fit for Zexio Clubs is hitting it higher and straighter than ever before, changing your game. Zexio Clubs are a Golf Digest Hot List Gold winner for 2021. Congratulations to Zexio Ambassador NB Park for her five-stroke victory earlier this year at the Kia Classic. It was her 21st victory and she did it using Zexio 11 woods and X-irons. Ernie Els and top instructor Martin Hall are Zexio ambassadors as well. See why and how Zexio can help improve your game. Go online to ZexioUSA.com. That's X-X-I-O-U-S-A.com, and pick which set is right for you. Okay, now back and next on the tee with me is PGA Tour caddy Kip Henley. Let me remind you about Kip's background. He's from Chattanooga, Tennessee, played his college golf at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, where he finished tied for 19th at the 1982 Marshall Invitational and tied for 4th at the Southern Conference Championship. Kip has been a PGA Class A professional since 1988. He played out on the Hooters Tour, the Corn Ferry Tour, and a few times out on the PGA Tour. He's won the Tennessee State Open twice and been the Tennessee Player of the Year four times. He won the Golf Channel's Big Break 2 back in 2004. He's recently had back-to-back top 20s in the Tennessee Senior State Open in 2017 and 2018. He's been a caddy on the tour for several years, carrying the bag for players like Jason Bond, Garrett Willis, Stuart Sink, VJ Sink, Austin Cook, Brian Gay, and Boo Weekly. In 2017, he was inducted into the Chattanooga Sports Hall of Fame, and I'm honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Kip, thanks for coming back on the show.
2: What's up, little buddy?
5: How
3: are you?
2: I'm fantastic. Kip, how are you? I'm good. Boy, I need you as my public. I didn't know I'd been so good at golf until you said all that.
4: <laughs> You've done a heck of a lot in the game, Kip. You're a, you're very well decorated, my friend. Talk to me. I, I'm surprised. I, I would expect to see you up in the top five or ten at the Tennessee State Open over the last couple of years. Why haven't we seen you out there?
2: You know, I, uh, it usually just doesn't work out of my schedule. And I get to participate, and, and if I do, the young kids just beat my brains in anymore. So, I've always said, though, when I, uh, I used to say, I don't say it anymore, but back in the old days when I was swamping everybody in Tennessee golf and winning a few things here and there, I always said I'm the greatest player you've never heard of. But <laughs> I can't say that no more. There's plenty <laughs> of great players out there. I'm old and washed up now, man.
4: So, Kip, I see you're you're out there in Idaho. I'm guessing you're on the bag for somebody at the Boise Open. Who are you uh who are you looping for?
2: Yeah, I'm working for my boy Dirt McGirt out here, and uh, it's uh, I'm pretty excited. You know, we uh, he's just trying to get his status better. He's got he's got 19 major medical starts for the upcoming PGA Tour season. No matter what we do this these three weeks, but he's here, you know, trying to get some reps under his belt and uh, improve his status, but. He's playing so good. I mean, he went around in 63 yesterday in the Pro-Am, and it was an easy 63. So I'm excited about what's going on. And, you know, he's back healthy again for the first time in a long time. He's had a couple of major hip surgeries. He's been out of the game for a while. And, he you know, he came back last year and he played sporadically. But uh he's he's ready to get – he's healthy and ready to get after it. And I'm ready to be his uh, uh heavy carrier of stuff. So I'm ready to go if he is. <laughs>
4: And the the tournament is up there at the Hillcrest Country Club. Russell Knox has got the uh, course record. He shot a fifty nine there back in twenty thirteen. You mentioned shooting sixty three. Is a is a fifty nine out there?
2: Very easy. Uh Dirt shot fifty nine on I mean he shot twenty nine on the front side yesterday. And let's see what he has, three birdies and a bogey on the back nine. So that's added up It's par seventy one. So uh yeah, it's Definitely out there because you know it's only like 68 yards tipped at 6,800 yards tipped out, so it's not super long, you know. And you give these guys the wedges, and stuff, and where they can and when they can get on the par 5s uh, in two, you know, without too much trouble, there's only like one, you know, par five that takes two good swings to get it on in two, and that's number three. But the rest of the par fives are cake and ice cream, the other two, and so there's one drive of the par four and the par threes don't stretch out. There's only one par three that stretches out. It's to pretty tough, but uh, um, the, the, you give these guys wedges in their hand and decent putt surfaces, which these are, and, and they're going to light it up. So, and there's no rain in the forecast. And, you know, there's smoke in the air from the, uh, some forest fires somewhere, you know, around here, I don't know, they're way away from here, but it's blown in and it's not as beautiful as it normally is here. And, in Boise, but it's still beautiful. The humidity is going to be low. The temperatures are going to be nice, but uh, I look for a great week. The, the scores will be fabulous this
4: week. Jeff, you mentioned the par threes, and I, I saw you made a ruling on Twitter recently. Holman ones on par three courses don't count. Really? They don't count? Yeah. I, no,
2: I am absolutely, I am the par three, uh, I don't know what's the word, uh, czar. I am. I mean, the hole in ones are. You have to come through me to get credit for your hole-in-one. These guys are claiming hole-in-ones on par 3. Par 3 golf courses are insane. I call it heat for that. But you cannot do. You know, I've had 13 hole-in-ones. I'm crazy lucky. I I mean, I've topped four woods in the hole and everything. But none of my hole-in-ones are are counted off par 3s. I grew up playing this little rinky-dink golf course called uh, Wilcox Boulevard. And it was a par three, and like the longest one was like 110 yards, and the shortest one was like 50. We made hole in ones all because we would go around. We play, you know, we play 100 holes a day. We make hole in ones like almost every other day, and those aren't on my account. It's a hole in one, but you have to do finger quote air quote and say, but <laughs> it was on a par three course. So that's that's the only way you can say I have a hole in one. You cannot say count that in your hole in one count, but. So. It's just the rules. I, I don't. I uh, I don't make. I kind of make them, but <laughs> <laughs> I like to I like to stir of the pot, as you might guess.
4: <laughs> what about at Augusta National at the par three contest on the Wednesday? Those don't count.
2: No, absolutely not. Especially they put those things at the bottom of those funnels where every ball feeds right to the hole. That's crazy talk. You say I made a hole in one on the par three course at Augusta, which is pretty cool. But you cannot say, you cannot count that in your hole-in-one total. If you've only got a hole-in-one on a par-three course, you do not have a lifetime hole-in-one. You have a par-three hole-in-one. That's all. That's all. You, you can't count it any other way. And some guy said, oh, so my son had three hole-in-ones on putt-putt last night. If you count the par-three courses, you got to count the putt-putt. And I go, you're exactly right. Case closed. The next case is walking into
1: the courtroom.
4: Uh, that's great, Kim. Okay, well, I <laughs> want to get your thoughts on the Ryder Cup, and and then I'm I'm gonna make you Ryder Cup captain for the U.S. team. So according to the point, right? You, know, you got six guys are in: Colin Morikawa, DJ Bryson and Brooks, JT, and, and Xander Shopley. Those guys are all in. Then you got Jordan Spieth, Harris English, Patrick Reed, Daniel Berger, Patrick Cantlay, and Tony Finau, and the, you know they they round out the top 12. And right? so. Right. Captain Kip Henley, are, are are you? Would you take the chalk and just take those other six, and there's your twelve? Or do you like uh, other guys that you would make uh, kind of mix and match some other guys in there?
2: Well, wow, I'm going to mix and match, and I'm probably going to commit caddy suicide here by saying these guys and leaving some out. But I mean, uh, how I mean, how do you leave a guy like Berger off? Berger, he barely talks to me. He don't even like me hardly out there. And how do you leave that guy off? Because he's a tough sucker, you know. He loves to gamble. I'm going to take those kind of guys that just love matches and love to gamble and love the the chit chat and the you know the giving the needle. I mean, I'm going to put Phil Mickelson on that team. I'm going to put Berger on that. Put Jordan Spieth on that team just because he just puts and that putter in match play will just beat your brains in. It'll drive you crazy. Those guys hitting those 20 footers. There's nothing more demoralizing than match play. But I want a couple of young guns like Berger that. You know, you can't call him a young gun anymore, but the guys that just love to gamble and things like that. And even though the course is huge, I mean, kids, God, I hate to leave kids off that team. I mean, there's a lot of guys. I mean, Harris English, just because he's just such a quality human being, how do you leave that guy off the team? But uh, I, I I would uh, I envy the guy getting to choose, but, I, you know, I kind of feel sorry for the guy getting to choose. He's going to hurt some feelings this week or coming soon should play this week.
4: What about um, your old boy, Stuart Sink? I mean, he's had a couple of wins this year, had a nice Masters, finished tied for 12. Is there a case to be made for someone like him, not just for his play, but his veteran leadership that uh, they may need in that team room?
2: No doubt about it. What a quality guy. I mean, if nothing else, the whole team comes out of their higher morals at the end of the week than they had going in because Stuart Sink is one of the highest moral human beings I've ever met, especially the golf pro. I mean, the guy's got two Ws in the season. He's not even on the team. That is amazing. Our team is going to be so strong. And I know the Euros. They team up and they're better teammates than we are. But we're just going to outclass them this year. We're going to beat the pants off those cats. But how do you leave that guy off the team? But I mean, I don't see him getting chosen if he if he doesn't make it on his own merit, you know. And I don't know when the I don't even know enough of when it runs out to know when it when it's over with, when he has to choose. So
4: So speaking of teammates, Kip, you know, we all have heard tons about the Brooks and Bryson issues. You know, Patrick Reed isn't the most popular guy out on tour. How do you make up the pairings, and how do you keep the team room from turning into a circus when you've got those three in there?
2: if if, if really, truly, I mean, if, if you have to guard the team room, if there's a guy who pulls away from the team in any way whatsoever. I mean, I blackball that guy forever. If there's anything that has to – if you have to tell someone, hey, listen, dude, we're a team. We're not an individual. If you have to tell an individual that, I promise, I spread it around. You, If you choose this guy, you're an idiot. If don't make it on his own merit, you cannot have – it's all about – that's why the Euros beat the crap out of us. They're having more fun than us, and they're teaming up, and they're pulling for the guys. And we've been a, you know, we've been a, a strong team of individuals. But Paul Azinger was the greatest captain we've ever had on the Ryder Cup. You can, I'll go to my be- deathbed saying that. And Zinger don't even like me that much. But the guy is incredible. <laughs> he was he was smart enough to team guys up. You know, he searched out even the military guys and goes, who do I put in what talk to? And he was smart about it. And it worked. And I, I can't believe they, we we didn't do like they, the uh, Euros did Jacqueline. Leave him on there till we beat him. He should have been coaching them all. If it's important, let the guy who doesn't get doesn't get beat let him coach it. But so that's what it's about. You find out who clicks together and things like that. And I mean, I mean, I would call it, I call in those military guys. I mean, I just saw I tweeted the other day if uh, somebody called this guy into the Ryder Cup Euro uh, the the Ryder Cup team the uh, guy who's I I tweeted, if you follow me on Twitter, I tweeted about the guy, and he's telling his story about being in Afghanistan and stuff in Iraq, and it's incredible. Those are the cats that you need in there to inspire, you know, and take some of the focus off the game. Realize it's just a game, but play your best and be a great teammate. But if you're not a good teammate, you're not ever going to be on one of my teams, I promise. Kip, let's talk about
4: focus. There's been a lot of it on Bryson DeChambeau over the last year, and if you're out there and you're looping for a guy and you're paired, you know, with Bryson on a whatever day of the week it is, but you know, you, you get the fans that are out there jeering him and the Brooksy thing and all of that sort of thing. How do you keep your player focused and not get kind of sucked into all this stuff that's going on with Bryson DeChambeau, particularly if it's you know on a Sunday like we just saw with Harris English? How do you keep him focused and away from him? You
2: know, I get the press and the TV. You know, they have to have stories. It can be a boring game, you know, at times, and they they need that was good for the game for about ten minutes. Brooksy and and uh, Bryson, their little kids, that was good for the game for about ten minutes. But if if the fans are starting to uh, interject too much into the game and calling uh, Bryson, Brooksy, and things like that just obsessively. Uh, the tour needs to be better about letting the uh, guys throw. You know, if if guys are crossing the line obsessively, toss them out, you know. You don't see that at Augusta. You don't see the fans screaming out crap at Augusta because everybody knows they have the total power at Augusta. You mess up, you're gone. So everybody doesn't mess up. The tour needs to be, you know, I, I want the young fans. I get it. I want the tank top guys. I want the rednecks. I want the beer drinkers. I want the guys with the music to have a place in the game. I'm not trying to run them out of the game, but when it comes to the P J Tour event, there needs to be a little bit more of a heavy hand when it comes to bad fan behavior. Full of them. the other, the other idiots will calm down. You know, they'll see it go. Well, if I scream out right here, I'm going to get tossed over, so I'll get on the other side of the fence. So there needs to be a little bit more of a heavy hand in the thing. I don't want to run off the young screaming guys that much, but I mean, there's a middle there somewhere. And right now, I think. The fans are uh, past that, and and that's you know it's it's kind of what America's got into now with the you know the uh, the the self what's it called the the you know I don't know how, what the word I'm searching for but the, the 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 fans or the young people that just just does, they just lack respect a little bit right now. There needs to be a little bit of pull it back the other way. So is that on Jay oh,
4: Monahan? Does, does the tour need to step in?
2: Yeah, and I mean I love. I mean Jay Monahan is by far and away the greatest uh, guy we've ever had out there. Dean Beeman killed it, you know. And what's his nuts? He had his own uh, little hours here and there. But Jay Monahan, that guy's a hands-on. He knows all the caddies. He knows all the players. You know, I know one or two of the the uh, commissioners that didn't know, but like two of the caddies' names and stuff. Jay Monahan is on. He's a hands-on guy. Smart cat. But uh, yeah, I think it. You know, I, I I I put it back on him a little bit to say, okay, boys, just team in. Let's take it back just a little bit on the fan bad fan behavior. It's just a little. It's not a lot. It's just a little. So you ask me the question, how do you keep your guys' head out of that? But if you're, I don't know about the, the answer to that question. If your guys worrying about what everybody else is doing, you're going to have a fringe player anyway. You're caddying for. You know, if you got a guy who's taking care of business, worrying about his own stuff, that's the guy that's going to make you some money as a caddy.
4: Kip Bryson and his caddy, Tim Tucker, recently kind of went their separate ways. And Bryson seems like a, a pretty demanding kind of player, not only with all the calculus and geometry that he wants you to do to give him the precise yardages that he needs, but also, you know, the practicing, right? I mean, the practicing in the dark, the lights are on. Seems like a lot to ask for, from your caddy to, you know, carry my bag all day long in a four or five hour round, and then uh, you know, get out on the practice range and, and help me until all hours of the night. Is, is that is that overstepping? Is that too much to expect from a caddy?
2: <clears throat> not if you're paying the right fee, but you're not going to be able to replace him. I, I always say that Timmy was Timmy for Bryson is the same as as Teddy was for Bubba. I mean, those two guys could go out and they could do, conduct twenty thousand great caddy, you know, people that are known for caddy in interviews, and if they chose anyone but those two for themselves, they chose the wrong guy. Those two guys were built for their men. And, of course, they're, they're getting paid. You know, if if Bubba finished 125 on the money list every year and didn't have any Masters wins, Teddy would be long gone sitting at home doing golf lessons. He's a smart guy. But, and, and I'm not saying, you know, Teddy is, a, he's very tolerant of Bubba and, and they're great friends, and Teddy is a great human being. But if you're not making money, big money, and you're getting treated sometimes kind of rough and stuff, then you're going to stick your chest out and fight back here and there. But just a couple times as a caddy, you've got to swallow your pride and let it just pass over the top of you. Something I'm not very good at, but Timmy was a great (laughs) caddy. I'm telling you, every time Timmy quits, and this is like his third time, every time Timmy quits, Bryson runs through the caddies, you know, he picks up idiots like me and goes, well, this guy can't do what Timmy did, and he can't put up with me like Timmy did, and I'll hire Timmy back for more money. So Timmy, you know, I know he's got that shuttle business or but I predict that Bryce will hire him back for more money than he hired him the last few times, and he'll come back and he'll kill it again together. But they're a, they're a match made in heaven, those
4: two. Give just a couple more before I let you go. And, and as a caddy, you know, let's talk a little bit more on the personal life. How do you find a player that's a solid player and is going to help you make money but also is going to, you know, truly cares about you and your time with your family and the things that you've got going on and just doesn't care about themselves?
2: You know, that that's a hard, hard nut to crack right there, boss. But that's exactly where it's at. You know, I'm with uh, Dirt McGirt, you know, and uh, he's been out of the game for a while and he's 42, and a lot of people think he's probably on the back nine of his career. But working for a William McGurk, the guy pulls you in, he he respects your opinions, he'll ask your opinions about the game, and you know, man, if me and old dirt ever get a win together, it's gonna to be tears involved because he lets you be a part of the team. And that's so important for the cat. Cash. cash, you know, you're away from your family, you're away from your kids, you're missing your grandkids, and you're missing the the proms. You're it's a tough, tough gig. If things aren't going good, it's a super tough gig. I had a caddy come to me today, and I won't say his name. He goes, Kip, what should I do? I don't know what to do. I had a guy, and I'm not his guy anymore. I'm looking around. I'm bouncing around. I kind of got a dingbat here and a dingbat there. What should I do? And I go, brother, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll just think about you and, 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 and pray for you. I said, I don't know what to tell you to do because I just know answer. Going good, we have the second greatest gig on earth. The guy we're handing the club to has the greatest gig on earth. But us caddies chasing the sun and seeing the beautiful cities and all the ball games and the tickets, man. If if it's going good and your guy's up there and he's in like the top sixty or seventy on the money list and you're making bank and you're kind of putting away money, the caddies don't have retirement. You know, the only retirement we have is what we put in. So, you're, if you're not making a lot of money, more than people think you should. Then you're not putting away any money either, and there's a lot of broke, broke caddies on the PJ Tour. But when it's going good, Chris, there's nothing better. I mean, it's so sweet when, uh, and and if your guy brings you in like you ask him, it's so sweet. But it's just that there's no, I mean, you you can't put a you can't put a price tag on our job late Sunday afternoon. It is the most cool job in the world. Now, when you're making those, you're at the Delta checkout counter on Friday night, our jobs sucks. <laughs>
4: Kip, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with you and all the great things you're doing, follow you on social media?
2: <laughs> I don't know how much great stuff I'm doing, little buddy, but I'm uh, I'm on Twitter, and I think it's just Kip, and I don't even know how to look my up, and I'm kind of opinionated on there, but. I like to have fun, and you know, and I'm gonna take jabs here and there at you. But if you're my buddy, I'm your, I'm your close buddy. So, like I am with you, you know, you're a good dude. You don't throw rocks at me, and you let me be an idiot. You don't say Kip, you're an idiot. Those are the guys I like to fun. <laughs> I have too many to go, Kip, you're an idiot. So, so I spend a lot of time on that block button too, little buddy.
4: <laughs> no but doubt. I
2: want everybody to pull it's for You're awesome, my I friend.
4: I appreciate the fact that you gave me some time on a busy night for you. Best of luck to to you and uh and Dirt McGirt this weekend. I'll be watching and uh pulling for you both. You're fantastic, my friend.
2: Awesome being on here with. You. And I have a thing. Everybody pull for Dirt McGirt. I have a thing in life. The more people that pull for you guys, the better they do. It's just like that the circle of life. So, Everybody pull from McGirt and help a little broken down, caddy out. I appreciate you.
4: <laughs> Absolutely. Take care, Kip. Stay safe, my friend. All the best to you and your family. Peace. See you, Kip. That's a great Kip Henley, and he's a great follow on Twitter, my friends. You, you got to follow him and then uh, give him some positive vibes, he and McGirt, this weekend. Hopefully they have a great uh, a great week. I'd love to see. Uh, Dirk, go out there and, uh, and, and shoot one of those 59s and hopefully uh, be right there at the top of the leaderboard come Sunday pulling hard for both of those guys. Okay, before I get to my next guest, Tom Stankowski, I want to remind you about a few more of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Finn Cycles. It's time to rethink golf. The game is at a tipping point. The young people we need in the game don't have four and a half hours to spend out on the course Pairing fin cycles with a desire to play ready golf can cut playing time in half because all golfers go directly to their own golf ball. Plus it's tons of fun. Go online to finscooters.com and click on find a fin for a course that has them near you. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Golf Pride. Did you know that Golf Pride lets you rep your favorite team while also using the number one grip in golf? Your team, your grip, mcc hybrid grips the number one grip series worldwide features an exclusive brush cotton cord in the upper hand for all weather performance with premium rubber in the lower hand for added feel the new mcc team series is available in a variety of new color combinations so you can rip your favorite team out on the course available in standard and midsize check it out online by going to golf pride.com And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at the PGA TOUR Superstore.
3: This segment of the show is brought to you by the
2: PGA TOUR Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA TOUR Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATOURSUPERSTORE.COM. Now
1: back to Chris and more of the show.
4: Okay, now next on the tee with me is Tom Stankowski. As you all know, his brother Paul has been a wonderful friend of the show over the last eight years. Tom is a fantastic player as well. Played his college golf at Arizona State where he won twice in 1986 at the San Francisco and Butler National Intercollegiate Tournaments. He was twice named an honorable mention for All-American in 1987 and 88. He was named a first or second team All-Pac-10 player from 1986 to 1988. Qualified for the U.S. Open in 1992. In 2004, he won the San Francisco Open. 2005, came back to Arizona and won the Arizona Open by five strokes at Troon Country Club, setting the 36-hole record with opening rounds of 65 and 66. In 2007, Tom finished 34th on the Canadian Tour's Order of Merit. He came back in 2008 and finished 22nd at the Seaforth Country Classic thanks to a final round, 63, and then he won the Canadian Tour Championship, which lifted him to 7th on the Order of Merit that season. Tom has also had success down in Naples, Florida. He was the medalist for local qualifying for the U.S. Open in 2012. He qualified for the U.S. Senior Open Championship in 2016. In 2017, he finished tied for 10th at the Florida Senior Open Championship, and this year he finished tied for 20th. And I'm excited to have him with me here tonight on Next on the Tee. Hey, Tom, thanks for coming on the show.
6: Hey, Chris. Uh, glad you had asked-
4: Tom, I want to start by going back to when you and Paul were kids. When did you guys first start playing and getting out on the golf course? Wow,
6: wow, <laughs> what a question! Um, that was back in Oxnard, California, um, little CB base that my dad, uh, my mom lived across from, and and was lucky enough to play there. Cost like 25 cents for a dependent to go play with his with his dad, and and uh, that's where Paul and I kind of started, and we, and. Uh, that yeah, was fun. It was a good gig. <laughs> actually.
4: Tommy, you got to be honest with me here and it's just you, me and a few thousand of our closest friends listening in tonight, but did you tackle Paul hard in a backyard football game? Did you drop him on his head at some point? How in the world did you allow Paul to become a Dallas Cowboys fan?
6: <laughs> right? <laughs> Man, there's so many stories I couldn't even I I, I couldn't pull one out though. It's it's uh it it was great having him as a brother, that's for sure. It is having him as a brother, that's for sure. But um as far as stories go, shoot man. I I can't remember stories, man. I, I stay in the present moment.
4: <laughs> and and Tom, like you mentioned, you guys are from Oxnard, California and so I'm curious, how did you end up playing your college golf at Arizona State?
6: Shoot, George Baltell, the legendary George Baltell, um recruited me. He was actually recruiting another player um, and seeing me play at Junior World, and uh, that's kind of how it started. I, and I went to my recruiting trip out there and fell kind of in love with the desert. It was kind of totally different golf than what I grew up on. And uh, I'm a Sun Devil for life. <laughs> right home. On.
4: 1986 was a, a big year for you. You won twice that season. Talk about what you remember about winning the San Francisco and Butler National Intercollegiate Tournaments.
6: Well, those two good golf courses. Um and for some reason I just get geared up for good golf courses. I mean I don't know. I mean <laughs> Olympic club that that San Francisco Intercollegiate was an Olympic club and, and um you know, I, I guess I play good on hard golf courses. I have no idea. <laughs> but uh <laughs> yeah and then a Butler National. Butler National was a pretty pretty special spot too to I'd watched that golf that, that golf course at Butler that through the Western Open, I, I believe, was there. But, so I watched that for a long time and got to play there and actually won there. So that was weird. I mean, it, 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 that's all I could say is weird because it's like it, it's something you dream of doing and then all of a sudden it happens and you win. And you're like, whoa, that? that, that that's weird. <laughs> but uh,
4: anyway. <laughs> And, Tom, you played alongside Billy Mayfair, who had a very successful college and PGA Tour career. Talk about being teammates with Billy.
6: Well, Billy taught me a huge, valuable lesson. And it wasn't until, you know, 10, 15 years after college that I actually learned it. And when we would play, we'd play five days a week together on Monday through Friday. And and, um, when we would play, Billy would always post a score every day. I'm out with the other guys just hitting two shots, three shots, picking up, not really posting a score. And uh, I just, you know, he posted a score all the time. So when we get to a tournament, he was so used to posting a score that he would just, it would be like the same routine for him. Whereas for us, we're like, okay, cool. Now we get to go post a score, you know, and and uh, he would always play good. And we would always play not as good as we probably could have played. But um, I've learned a valuable lesson that, you know, that's just kind of the way you have to do it. You have to, you know, post scores to be able to improve, you know, being a golfer. That period. I don't care how much time you spend on a range and a chipping green. And if you can't learn how to play the game of golf, you know, that's and – and, and and playing the game of golf isn't the golf swing. You no, know, it's totally different. So Billy Mayfair was a great great guy to look up to. And the chase, because he was always the number one player. He was the best player in the country coming out as a junior. And, and uh, you know, I got to play with the best in the country five days a week. Um, he used to hit this five wood that would I'd hit. I mean, it would be like eight feet every time from, from 210 yards out. He'd hit this little five wood to 10 feet. You know, I, I just watched it all wow. the time. I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. So it's kind of like, that's what I have to do. You know, so he kind of gave me that bar to set on how close to hit it from far range, you know, and I don't hit the ball very far. I've never have hit the ball very far, but, you know, so I need those five, four, three irons, you know, five woods, three woods. I need those into some par fours. So I got no problem with that. You know, I don't, I'll let the guys hit it farther than me, hit an eight iron in and I'll hit my four iron. I have no problem. (laughs) I don't have an ego. I'm not like trying to bust it out there farther because they hit it a lot farther than me. It's just kind of, I just go with my game.
4: Phil Mickelson came to Arizona State the year after you left. Did you get to know him at all back then, or were you on to other things by the time he got there?
6: Well, I I didn't get to know him. I've hung out with him, um, played some pool with him. Great pool player, by the way, too. Um, And uh, played once or twice with him in college, because I did hang out there when I first turned pro in 1988. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was kind of cool. He came in and, uh, Billy and I left and, and, uh, yeah, the rest is history.
4: <laughs> Tom, Arizona State has such a rich history of great players. Tom Pertzer was there before you. He's become a great friend of the show. Howard Twitty back in the day, another great player. Did those guys ever come around and, uh, give you guys some tips or, Help you in any way to uh, improve your games, and then give you some encouragement along the way as well.
6: we'd see him once in a while, um, not not very often, but we would see him, and uh, they'd be gracious and give us their time and and you know share some of their their experiences. Because for you know when you're a freshman and sophomore, it's so fresh. And you're I mean for me to be at Arizona State, you know all of a sudden I'm in Oxnard one day and Arizona State the next day. It's or or Tempe the next day. It's like It's hard, It's the adjustment. So they were kind enough to um, come back, you know, Jimmy Carter and guys like that that were closer to my age. Um, So, yeah, it's nice to have that fraternity of guys that that look after each other. That's for sure.
4: Tom, 2005 was another good season for you. You won the Arizona Open by five strokes, breaking the 36-hole record with a 65-66 start in the first two rounds really sealing the deal on the back nine during the final round. You drove the green on the 299-yard par four thirteenth 13th hole. You followed that with a birdie, a 60-foot bomb that dropped in on 14. You added another birdie for good measure on 17. What do you remember about that week, and what was it like winning the Open in the state where you played your college golf?
6: Yeah, that was special. Um, it was special from the time I drove the green. Yeah, I mean— 'cause at that moment in time, I only had um maybe a one shot lead um and the guy who took the you know who who just made birdie on me um he got up and he hit it up on the green, so I mean I could have laid up you lay up with like a four or five iron off to the right and then come over this big creek. I could have done that, but I thought, you know what this is it I mean, I have to do this, I'm not bailing out, you know so I hit it up there on the green, and I end up—he ended up three-putting, and I ended up making birdie. And then it was just kind of like, okay, I think I had a two-shot lead then, <laughs> you know. So, and then it was just kind of neat from there on out. And playing in Arizona, I had a good buddy of mine come out and watch me play, and and I played with Steve Schneider, who's a great player from Utah, great pro from Utah. I was playing; he was actually the defending champion that that year, and I was playing with him the first two rounds when I shot 65, 66, and to be honest, if it wasn't for him that I played with that, I don't know if I would have shot that, you know, cause he just kind of, he was a defending champ. I've known Steve for a long time and it was, it just happened to, you know, I just happened to get in the zone <laughs> and for two, three days. And, uh, yeah, that was fun, especially, you know, being a Sun Devil. So yeah, that 05 was good. And plus I played the gateway tour out there as well during that, during 05. Um, so I was playing a lot of golf then. Um, you know, and enjoying life. Now I'm not playing much.
4: (laughs) Tom, you go up to Canada and you have a lot of success up there as well. I read that the 63 you shot in the final round at the Seaforth Country Classic helped give you the confidence to go on and win the Canadian Tour Championship in 2008. Do you recall, did something click in that final round for you at Seaforth that helped you the rest of the way that season?
6: well it's a, that golf course is a very it's very gettable guys were going really low um it's not a very long course and there's a few couple drivable par fours and it's a fun course super fun course to play um, and i played it a couple years and i i you know i shoot sixty nine sixty seven you know just just you know not getting it i mean that's that's those are decent scores, but not on a course where you should you could you can get sixty three pretty easy sixty two and uh when I shot 63, I just – everything kind of came together that day. You know, I, I drove the the, the par 4s before I hadn't. I just stepped up and hit driver and got him on those par 4s and made my birdies. And, and uh, you know, I just kind of rolled over. And it was actually, I want to say, it was the very next week that the Tour Championship was up in Barrie, Ontario. And, and then just kind of had that feeling. And when you have good feelings, it's hard to have a bad feeling. You know, so I had – awesome feeling on every aspect of my game. And I just kind of wrote it (laughs) and it was fun. The only bummer is I didn't have a tournament after that, in '08. eight, you know, that was, you know, that was, um, that was the end of the tour. Champion. That was the end of the tour. So I just kind of, I kind of came back home and, and then I saw my dad hug his brother for the last time and Tom in that 2008
4: Canadian tour championship. You trailed by four shots after 36 holes. But in the final round, you and Canadian Wes Heffernan, you guys were tied with two holes left to play, and you hit what I'm guessing was one of the best clutch six irons of your life on the approach on 17. You hit it to four feet and then make the birdie to take the lead, and then a great drive and another six iron pin high on 18. You make that putt too. Talk about that situation and producing those clutch shots to win
6: irons too i got lucky i had kind of the same yardage on both shots and when i pulled off the six iron on 17 well when i had the six iron on 18 i'm like that's just the same shot you know so i back and that shot on 17 gave me some confidence and i pulled it off on 18 um you know i was just in that moment and i didn't know i was going to win i mean i'm tied going into 16 and i i, I want to say i had that lead or and then i lost it and then i'm tied going into 17, and. To birdie 17, 18, it was just, you know, I didn't, uh, I think it was just put 100% belief in myself that I can do it. You know, so that And that, that's why I pulled it off. <laughs> I think that's why we pull off anything is when we have 100% belief in our ability. You know.
4: Tom, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with the things that you're doing? I know you're playing some really good golf down there in Florida, qualifying for the state championship and the senior state championship. Let them know how they can stay up to date with you.
6: Well, um, I, I have a Facebook page and Instagram page and it's, uh it's Tommy Stankowski at, um on Facebook and Instagram and uh that's about it. You know, I'm um I don't post a whole lot. I'm not a big social uh media guy, but uh you know, I kind of lay low and, and um but when I do stuff, I do post some things and and uh yeah, I, I appreciate you having me on, Chris. That's, that's awesome. What I was gonna say earlier, when I got kind of emotional, is I saw my dad hug my his his brother for the last time, for, for the last time, and then that's when I said, you know what, man, I gotta get I gotta get off the road and get closer to my mom and dad and kind of take care of them a little bit, and that's kind of where I am now, you know. So it's that's kind of led to led to, to my current situation. So it's all good. I love it. I love the decisions I've made in life.
4: Well, Tom, thanks for taking time out of your night to come and be a part of the show. I hope you'll come back and do it again sometime.
6: Chris, yeah, man. Awesome. I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I do, too. <laughs> I look forward to talking to you as well.
4: Thanks, Tom. Take care. Say hello no, to brother. Paul for me. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon.
6: Right on. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye.
4: See you, Tom. That's uh, Tom Skankowski, and uh, the guy has done tremendous stuff on the, uh, on the Florida circuit down there for the Florida Open, the Florida Senior Championship. He's qualified uh, for, for the U.S. Senior Open. So he's a heck of a player, and uh, hopefully we get the opportunity to have him back on the show again sometime. Okay, before I get to my next guest, Dennis Walters, I want to give a shout-out to our friends over at 2 Under. 2 Under men's performance briefs are the official underwear of the 2021 U.S. Ryder Cup team, the captain and all vice captains. They are worn by more than 30 players on the PGA and Champions Tour. They are also worn by over 70 NCAA Division I colleges and 17 NFL teams. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort, fit, and performance, from the golf course to the boardroom to the bedroom. Find these two underperformance men's briefs in over 4,000 golf pro shops nationwide, All Shields Sports Stores, PGA Tour Superstore, golf galaxy and other fine retailers near you go online to two under.com that's the number two u n d r.com two under performance in your pants use code on the t20 for a 20 percent discount at checkouts not valid on items already on sale or ncaa license briefs i also want to welcome a new sponsor to the show pine valley orthotics and their founder Stu sakowitz did your feet Back, knees, and hips stop you from playing good golf or golf at all? Maybe plantar fasciitis or neuropathy is killing your golf game? Then you owe it to yourself to try a pair of Pine Valley orthotics with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Pine Valley orthotics are uniquely designed with an energy return system not found in any other product. When you step down, they gently spring back, relieving foot pain and stress, energizing your whole body, and they work. I love my Pine Valley orthotics. I've got them in my golf shoes, and I've got them in my dress shoes. In fact, Stu Sakowitz, the owner, is so sure that they're going to ease your pain, he's offering a 30-day money-back guarantee. If you want better balance and stability, treat yourself to a pair of Pine Valley Orthotics today. Go to PineValleyOrthotics.com, and for a limited time, you can get these for only $99 and a 30-day money-back guarantee. That's only $99. Ease your pain, improve your game, and change your life. Only at PineValleyOrthotics.com. Okay, now next on the tee with me is World Golf Hall of Famer Dennis Walters. Dennis is from Neptune Township, New Jersey, played his college golf at North Texas State, which is now the University of North Texas, and he captained them to four straight Missouri Valley Conference Championships. In 1967, he won the New Jersey Junior Championship, the Public Lynx Championship, and the Caddy Championship, becoming the first player ever to win all three amateur New Jersey titles in the same year. He qualified for the 1971 U.S. Amateur Championship and finished 11th. In 1972, he finished co-runner-up at the New Jersey State Championship. That year, he turned pro and then played over on the South African Tour. In 1974, Dennis was paralyzed from the waist down in a golf cart accident, found his way to continue playing the game by using a customized cart built just for him. He became a trick shot artist and first appeared doing that, at the 1977 PGA Merchandise Show. His Dennis Walter show has entertained tens of thousands of fans ever since. In 1978, he won the Ben Hogan Award for Courage. In 2008, he received the PGA of America's Distinguished Service Award. In 2018, Dennis was given the Bob Jones Award for Distinguished Sportsmanship in the Game. In 2019, he was inducted into the New Jersey State Golf Association and the World Golf Hall of Fames and I'm honored to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Dennis, thanks for coming on the show.
7: Thanks for having me, Chris. It's uh, nice to talk with you and all your listeners.
4: Dennis, I want to start our time tonight by going back to your college days. How does a kid that held all three New Jersey amateur titles at the same time end up playing his college golf at North Texas State?
7: Well, I wanted to be able to play golf all year round and play against the best players, so... There were a couple of club pros in Jersey, uh, Stan Mosel and Ray Ferguson, who had gone to North Texas, and they kind of helped me go down there. And uh, I I really had a wonderful time there, learned a lot. And uh, this was probably the most fun I've had playing golf.
4: And Dennis, you were competing in Texas at the same time that Tom Kite, Ben Crenshaw, Bruce Litsky, all those guys are playing their college golf there in Texas, either at the University of Texas or the University of Houston. What was it like competing at the college golf level against those guys?
7: Well, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was
5: challenging.
7: And I really learned a lot on how to play in the wind and from hard ground. And I remember at graduation, my mom said, well, Dennis, you
5: played four years here in North Texas. And you went to school and
7: you're graduating. What did you learn? What was the most uh, important thing that you learned here in four years? I said, Ma, I said, you really have to learn to hit your short irons down in the wind because if they (laughs) balloon, it's not going to work out too well. So, but it it was a lot of fun. I had some nice uh, tournaments, I had some great teammates, and it was. It's a whole lot different than it is now. I read where these kids go on a private jet and they're staying in all these places and four star hotels. We went a sixty three Oldsmobile station wagon and at uh I think we got ten dollars a day for lunch, a sleeve of
5: balls and a munsingwear shirt. But I I don't think they could have any more
7: fun than we're having now. So it's uh It's like everything else. It's really changed. And, uh, we used to get $15 a month for laundry money, the first of every month. I don't know one person in the athletic dorm that ever used that for laundry money. It was actually the biggest (laughs) gambling day of the, of the month. And, uh, it was great. Our, our coach said we could play, we could, we could play, but we couldn't play for more than a quarter, but. If you and I wheeled every combination, every day at noon, you'd get a game with three foursomes, and we'd wheel every combination. Our team, our foursome against your foursome, birdies, whatever, low metal, and you'd have like 75 bets going on at the same time. It was so complicated. We we hired a kid to go with us. He didn't play. He just kept scoring. At the end of the day, he'd say, (laughs) well, you owe me 75 cents, and you'd pay off because you could get a steak for three dollars. So it was it was a lot of fun. It was different
5: and it was it was a great learning experience.
4: And Dennis, you face those guys at the nineteen seventy one US Amateur Championship, but let's also throw in some other great legends like Joe Winman and Billy Kratzer and Terry Deal, um, who would, all of those guys would go on to have great careers on the PGA Tour. And you opened up that tournament with a 71. You're right in at the top of the leaderboard. What do you remember about that tournament?
1: I
5: remember I played 53 holes. Uh, I think I was even
7: par, one over. And I shot, I shot one nine, really bad. I was, I woke up that morning. I had about a seven, and I was, I was throwing up, and I, I threw up a couple times on that nine holes, the, the that first nine, and then I. I think I shot like 43 or 44, and I shot like 36 on the back. And uh, I ended up missing. The, they took the top eight to play in the U.S. Uh, in the Masters tournament. And I missed qualifying for the Masters by two shots, and I'm still mad about that.
4: <laughs> and you barely missed earning your tour card in 1972, and you went over to play. In South Africa to compete on that tour. What made you decide to go play over there?
7: A few of my friends had gone over there, and, and it was it was good training. There was nothing really to play in over here. I uh, very little to play in. I, the tournaments I was playing in were playing some state opens, and uh, one tournament I played in was the Egg City Open up in Maine, and I I finished second, won five hundred dozen eggs, which I owned for about. <laughs> five minutes and I sold it for five hundred bucks. But I figured it would be good because a lot of those tournaments were national open tournaments and I it was really cool because I got to play with all the all the best South African players. I played a few rounds with Gary Player and I got to play with Bobby Locke, the Henning Brothers, Bobby Cole and uh, Simon Hobday. All all these guys who were at the time, world-class players. And it was, it was nice. Peter Oosterhaus and uh, some other guys from England, but uh, it it was really cool. It was, uh, you could (laughs) play four rounds and you had caddies, you walked and they were big
5: tournaments and uh, it it was, it was terrific.
4: And Dennis, you mentioned Bobby Locke, and I've had the privilege of having Gary player on the show several times and Mr. Player always talks about uh, Bobby Locke being the greatest putter who ever lived, but he had a very unconventional stroke. Talk about what you saw from him.
7: Well, the biggest thing was the difference in the greens. The greens the greens back then, everywhere were long. They were grainy. and uh, I get a kick out of hearing these greens. They say, oh there's some grain in these greens. You know, grain in the green for me is when the the – West side of the cup dies, and it's white. And uh, the
5: uh, it, it would be, um, you know,
7: his, his technique was, whatever his technique was, you have to believe that his mind was the strongest thing because putting is almost all mental anyhow. So, yeah, he had an unusual technique, but I can promise you he was picturing that ball going in the cup. And I played with him. I played with him about. I probably played a half a dozen rounds with him. One time, he he had a downhill line, a bunker, and he he aimed to the right, and he and he he took like two grains of sand, and he hit it up there stiff. And I'm going, whoa, <laughs> it's a little different shot than I got. But now uh, he was he was something. He would. Uh, I said, Mister Locke. I said, every day you play, you wear a white. He wore like a white business shirt, a narrow tie, black knickers.
5: I said, "Why do you do that?" He
7: goes, "One less thing I have to think about." So, he was—he <laughs> uh, was a very strong. I'm sure he was a very strong-willed person who had a lot of self-confidence in his technique. Told me one time he—he he came over to the United States and he's winning all these tournaments. And he said, "They criticized my right hand grip." He said, "That's okay. I take the checks in the left." So I mean it was uh it was great you know and uh I played in a tournament with Gary Player and I actually beat him and I I talked to him about it till today uh till this day and uh, I said he must have been a little nervous playing with me and uh we played together in a in a at a tournament the Raymond Floyd Open at uh, the Palm Beach Par 3 course this winter he was my partner and uh we had we had uh, three other people, five man scramble, and, and we had such a great time. It was really cool, and we we weren't even trying to win, and we we ended up winning the tournament, and uh, we had a great time. I I uh, I picked them up and I drove them home. So we each way we spent like 40 minutes in the car together, just talking about the time we played golf like 50 years ago, and uh, it was really cool. It was. Probably the highlight of my winter, so.
4: Dennis the accident happens. Talk about recovering emotionally and how you are able to not let that define you.
3: Well, the thing about
7: it was I was twenty four i was I was almost where I wanted to go, and this happened to me and almost every person said too bad, you'll never be able to play golf again because can't stand up. I'm paralyzed from the waist down. I'm laying in a hospital bed. And I figure if I get out of this bed, it's going to be a miracle. And uh, I never thought I would accomplish anything. I I, I just never thought anything was possible. And, and I, I kind of, uh, I, I was about as low as you get i mean people have it a lot worse than me but i I, when it happens to you you think you it's the worst you you, you've got the worst break of all time and it was bad and i'm not going to sugarcoat it the the emotional depth that i was in it was it was horrible and uh but i i i promised myself if i ever got out of that bed i wasn't quitting i wasn't giving up and i was going to try to figure out a way that i could do something and for me doing something meant playing golf again and I know everyone said I'd never play golf because I couldn't stand up. So I said, I'll start hitting golf balls sitting down. My dad actually encouraged me to try to hit golf balls from my wheelchair. And and I did, and I did that for a while and we finally came up with with a uh I couldn't play golf. I was hitting balls on the range every day for about a month. And uh, but I couldn't play because I couldn't push the wheelchair all the way around the course and we finally came up with the idea to mount a swivel seat on the passenger side of the golf cart, and that's really how I got back on the course again. I never thought I could make a career out of it, but at least I was out hitting balls, and I was practicing, and I was playing. And for me, it was good therapy—it was good mental therapy, good physical therapy, emotional therapy. It was far better medicine than any pill I could take. But I—I I was just trying to cope with what I considered to be the most horrible, rotten situation. I never dreamed I could make a career out of it, but. I just kind of started doing that and uh first one I did was in nineteen seventy seven i've I've done well over three thousand performances since then traveled over three million miles so it's a, it's a pretty uh amazing journey and
5: i uh i'm glad i stuck stuck with it. you've become one of the best trick shot
4: artist ever. Where did the inspiration come to go that route?
7: When I was a kid I I was playing in the Met Junior and I and they they had Paul Hahn come in and do a, do one of his golf trick shot exhibitions. Paul Hahn was the most famous trick shot guy in the six fifties and sixties. And I was fitting for some reason I was in the first row. And I was I never said, Man, I like to do that. I just said
5: that was really cool.
7: And so after my accident, there were three golf courses that had benefit tournaments for me. And about when I finally got back playing again, I said to my dad, why don't we go show them that I'm actually playing golf again? And they really helped me. And he said, that's a great idea. So the first two I did,
5: and I got a reasonable uh
7: Response: I told people what I thought was different, playing golf this way, being paralyzed, and what was the same—how to hold the club, alignment, these types of things—and everybody was real nice about it. And then for the third one, I said to my dad, "I said, you remember when I saw Paul honey I said, could you make me a three-foot high tee? Go sure. So he made me a three-foot high tee, and I got a much better reaction. So I figured maybe I'm onto something, and I want, I got a film you could rent or borrow a film from the PGA of America with Paul Hahn performing at the 1960 PGA of Firestone. And I watched, I watched that thing 500 times and I'd say, well, I could do that one. That one. I know I could do that. No, forget it. I can't do that. So I started to try and practice some of these shots and uh my friend Gary Wyron got me a, my first official show the next year, which was 77. And I did it. I did the show at the PJ merchandise show with Jim Flick and Bob Tosky, And then I said, I started to get a few bookings, but bookings were slim, but I was getting better. Cause I was doing hundreds of shows at the back of the range for my dog, the birds, the squirrels and the trees. And, uh, you know, I was going nowhere fast, and in the early 80s, my dad wrote a letter to Jack Nicholas, who at the time owned the McGregor Golf Company, and McGregor signed me to a contract, and that's really when my career took off. That was my big break.
4: Dennis, talk about your relationship with Jack and Barbara Nicholas. I know they presented you for both the World Golf Hall of Fame and the Bobby Jones Award. Talk about your relationship with them.
7: Well the the Jack Nicholas has been a tremendous positive influence in my career and my life in that uh gave me that break with McGregor and it was what was great about it is they sent me everywhere i started doing a lot more shows and my dad went with me the first 17 years and so he's always had a big uh a big uh, influence and and a big help to me he wrote the forward to my book and when I was named the winner of the Bob Jones Award, I said to my sister, Barbara, who also has been a big help and a and a big uh, supporter of mine, I said, I think I'll ask Jack to be my presenter. She goes, well, don't forget about Barbara. She won the Bob Jones Award, too. So I said, oh, man, that's perfect. So I asked the both of them if they would uh, be my presenter. And they said, oh, sure. Sure really, you know, it was great, you know, that, that you asked us. And so we had a, we had a really great time. It was during the U S open at Shinnecock. And, uh, so
5: then the next year I was, I,
7: I got a call on October the 4th in, uh, 2018 and it was from Jack Peter, who was the, at the time in charge of the World Golf Hall of Fame, and he said, "Dennis, I, I'm calling to let you know you, you're a finalist for the World Golf Hall of Fame, and I'll call you next week at noon." So all week I was, I was saying, "I got no shot, no chance, forget it." It's nice to be nominated, speech, and uh, so, but and I tried not to think about it, but that's all I could think about, and anyhow. The week went on, progressed very slow, and right at noon, just like he promised, uh the phone rings and he, and he goes, "Hi Dennis, this is Jack Peter." Immediately, "Hi Dennis, this is Jack Nicholas." "Hi Dennis, this is Gary Player." They're all on a speaker phone. And, and the both wow. in the in, in the immediate the immediate thing I thought of, well, You know, if Jack Nichols and Gary Flair are calling me, this can't be bad news. They're not calling me up to say, hey, nice try. And then uh, they said (laughs) in unison, we're calling to let you know you've just been elected to the World Golf Hall of Fame, and we were your advocate. And I'm going, oh, man, I lost it. I started crying and everything. And I, I got done crying after a minute or so. And I said, man, oh, man, you two must have done some sales job on these people. Because there were 16 voters. They're from China and Europe, Australia. I'm saying, you know, I bet half these people never even heard of me. And uh, so Jack says, no, that's not true, Dennis. He said, every person in that room had heard of you. He says, but by the time the two of us got done, they heard a heck of a lot more. So I'm thinking, wow, Jack Nicholson, Gary Player are your advocates. Who's going to vote against you? (laughs) You know? Right. So it, anyhow that was uh that was amazing and then I, I called Jack and Barbara up and I said, Hey, you think we could get the band back together, would you guys do it again? And they go, Sure. And uh it was it was magical. My sister was there with me and uh it was incredible because it was at Pebble Beach during the US Open and they had the most Hall of Fame members return for the service ever. It was like 35 Hall of Famers, and I, I was up on that podium, and you could only see about maybe eight or ten rows back because of the light, but I'm looking out there, and the, the guy who produced the show said, Dennis, take your time. He says, you got a great speech. Take your time. Look out. Enjoy the moment. And I said, okay. So I'd look out there, and I'd say, wow, there's Lee Trevino. <laughs> And, and I'm going. There's Johnny Miller, and there's Gary, and there's Jack and Barbara, and I'm and my sister, and I'm just looking out there, you know. And I was soaking it all in,
5: and it was just amazing. It really was an incredible situation, a evening, and wow, I, I just,
7: uh, it was amazing.
4: So not only did you get into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 2019, you got into the New Jersey State Hall of Fame <laughs> as well. So talk about yeah. that. Talk about going back to your home state and getting into that Hall of Fame.
7: Yeah, that was great. That was incredible. We uh, we had a wonderful ceremony there. And it was the thing I remember the most about that was it was right in the middle of all the political turmoil and everybody's arguing with everybody. and. Can't have a civil conversation, but that night in that room, there were about five of us who who got in and uh Billy's an old buddy of mine, and I were the only ones that were living so we We gave the speeches the other people were represented by their family. but you could feel it, there was a lot of love in that room, and there was no no political talk no no uh disagreements. Yeah, everything was positive, and I made note of that in my my talk and it was fantastic and i I met a lot of uh i met a lot of people there I hadn't seen for a long time and uh uh I played this one kid in the state junior and he came up and talked to me about it and he remembered it and uh it was just it was a wonderful evening and uh it was it was very special and I've been uh, – I just did a show at my favorite golf course of all time, the Hollywood Golf Club in Deal, and I I uh, I used to pick the range. I picked it up with a sand wedge and a yellow bucket. We we didn't have a picker. That's how you picked up the range. And uh, if it got busy, they gave you a football helmet, and you went out there and
2: picked them up while people were hitting. But,
7: you know, there were all kinds of rules, I guess, back then, but nobody paid attention to, you know and uh <laughs> I love the Hollywood Golf Club and a group of folks from there came out to see me at uh, the ceremony and uh so I was just there they just restored the course back to the way it was by um the original design and so it's just a spectacular place
5: and I uh I I
7: remember that well because It was, uh, I played Billy Billy Ziobro in the juniors the year before, and he had this brown wedge. It was an R90 wedge with punch holes in it, in the face. And he got it up and down from everywhere. And I said, I got to get me one of these clubs. And so I went, when I got back, I lost, he beat me on the, the last hole. And I went back home and I, I went to his bag room in Hollywood and I found one. It was like in mint condition. It was like from the 30s, and this was 60, 66. So the thing was 30 years old then, but it was like brand new. And uh, so I got my own, and I I ended up winning the tournament next year. And I used that club for a long time. And uh, I remember I got this club, and I'm going, oh man, this thing's great. I took it out to the bunker, and I'm I'm hitting these bunker shots, and they're stopping and spinning and everything and so the bag room guy said i said could i have this rock he goes yeah he said just put something in there so i had like an old sandy andy (laughs) and they put it in there as a replacement you know and uh so that was uh those are all memories everybody has and these are these are ones that are they remain fresh in my mind and they always make me smile and uh i i just uh you know that's that's the great thing about golf. You 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 have friends forever, and you you can play golf for as, as long as you can. You can even play sitting down if you want. So it's uh it's it's a great it's a great game. It's a great sport that teaches us a lot more than just how to hit the ball long and straight. And a, a lot of the lessons I learned playing golf helped me to overcome this problem that I had to deal with. So it's uh. Uh I'm a golf lifer. So, I'm all in. I'm still and I'm I'm 72. I've got 35 shows in 70 days on this tour. It's so nice to be back to work and I've been having a really nice summer. I've got another le- little less than a month to go and I'll be home. I have a a dog that is really uh spectacular. I, he's he's relative. I've had him for a year and a half. And I taught him to hit a golf ball, and he also answers questions. He's the opening act. So when people come to the show, I say, okay, here's the deal. When you go home, you're going to tell – the people will say, well, how was that show? How was that golf show? And you'll tell them, well, I saw a talking dog that could hit golf shots. And then I'd like to be around to hear the rest of the conversation because (laughs) he can do it. He's special, and uh, I – I'm really lucky I found him. He's he's the fifth one I've had. All of them have been rescued. And anybody looking for a dog or a cat in an animal shelter or rescue groups, it's a great place to begin your search. But I've had five of them. They're spectacular and they actually just made a documentary on my career and uh spoiler alert, the dog steals the movie. So,
4: it's, uh
7: yeah, it's great.
4: Then it's just a couple more before I let you go, and you, and you talk about friends, and we were brought together by a mutual friend, Russ Holden, who is the founder for Caddy for a Cure, and Russ and his organization have done so many great things for our wounded veterans. Talk about your relationship with Russ.
7: Well, Russ and I are very good friends. We are very close. i close with his family. His daughter, Kayla, is, a, is an up-and-coming, uh, very talented Young player who plays for Tennessee. She's going to be a sophomore, and she's a, a great gal, and has a has a great golf swing, and a, and a, a very bright future. And uh, I'm a big fan of Russ's all the work, as you said, that he's done for uh, wounded soldiers, people in need. And uh, we uh, last year, when all the golf courses were closed, there was no place there was no place to practice. And so I used to drive an hour, maybe four days a week, down to Broward County, and we used to practice at a vacant lot. The Heron Bay Golf Course was closed, and uh, we went out there, and we'd hit hit balls, and you'd have to dodge the fire ants and the weeds, and there was no grass there, but uh, it was a lot of fun because it was the only game in town. It was the only way we could practice, and we had had a blast doing that. Taylor would come with us and I'd practice work on my swing and all my trick shots. And so it was, it was great. We became very close because of that. And, uh, we had, uh, it was fun. We called it the Heron Bay golf and yacht club. And, uh, <laughs> it was fun because I had to drive down there. I left my stuff, my cart at, at his place. And then he lived about 10 minutes from there. So we'd, we'd, uh, I'd come down there. We'd hook up the trailer. We'd take it over. We'd get over there, and you know it's complicated for me. I just don't jump in a car and, and go. But we did it, and then the golf courses finally opened up. And but that that kept me going for at least six weeks. And it, it was fun. It was it was it was fun. It was uh, it was something different. And it, listen, I, I grew up kind of doing that. You know, hitting balls in a field, picking them up yourself, and uh so it it was great.
4: Dennis, before I let you go, let our listeners know how can they stay up to date with you, follow you online and on social media and go see your show.
7: Yes, well it's uh the Dennis it's the Dennis Walters Golf Dennis Walters Golf Show is my website and uh dot com. Dennis Walters dot com is the website, and then I'm on uh
5: facebook and twitter and i should have some news about the documentary it's called get a new dream and
7: it tells the story of me uh from laying paralyzed in a hospital bed to my life journey which culminates in the world golf my induction into the world golf hall of fame and it's uh it's really good. We're going to actually have a uh, showing of it in Fairfield, Connecticut, at the Community Theater at Sacred Heart University on next Tuesday, August the 24th. Anybody in Connecticut, metropolitan area wants to come up, it's going to be great. It's, the theater itself holds like 300 people. And I've watched it on my phone and my tablet, but to see it on a real movie screen, that's going to be cool. So. We're trying to get uh, get a big turnout and have everybody see it, and we're hoping to find a streaming service or some network that would like to play it. That's what they're working on now. But we're easy to find, and I hope people will look at my website, and my schedule is always posted there, so if we're in your in your area, come and see us.
4: Well, Dennis, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come and be a part of this show. It was an honor to have you here. I hope you'll come back and join me again sometime.
7: Anytime. Thanks for having me, Chris. I I enjoyed it very much, and I wish you well and hope our paths cross real soon.
4: I hope the same. Take care. Stay safe, Dennis. All the best to you and your family. I look forward to catching up with you.
7: That would be great. Come on up to 24th. Watch the movie.
4: That would be awesome. I'll definitely be looking for it, and I'll be checking it out on your website. Hopefully, you guys come around the Atlanta area sometime. I'd love to see you.
7: Yeah, I'd love to. Take care.
4: Take care, Dennis. That's World Golf Hall of Famer Dennis Walters, and what a wonderful man, and what a wonderful contribution he has made to the game of golf and the impact he has had on so many lives. The title of the documentary, Get a New Dream, and that's what Dennis had to do. He had a dream for playing out on the PGA Tour, then he had to get a new dream. And that dream impacted thousands upon thousands of lives. He's had a positive impact on the game and on the people in the game and around the game. So kudos to Dennis, and I can't thank him enough for coming and being a part of the show. Hope the documentary gets out there on some of the streaming services. Can't wait to watch it, and also can't wait to have him back on the show again. You heard Tim Simpson say at the very top, right, what a wonderful man Dennis is and to pass along his, uh, his hello. And I will certainly do that uh, with Dennis. He's a super positive and a super talented guy. And folks, you got to see these trick shots. Unbelievable. With the broken club or the sort of really bendy club or a rubber club, a three headed club, the shots he pulls off are absolutely unbelievable. It's a lot of fun watching it. Go on YouTube, check out Dennis Walters' golf show. You'll be able to see a lot of the events that he is at. It's absolutely spectacular just like Dennis is, and hopefully we get him back on the show again soon. Okay, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T. My sincere thanks again to Tim Simpson, Kip Henley, Tom Stankowski, and Dennis Walters for joining me tonight. Please check out our website, nextonthetee.net, to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. And scheduled to join me next week are our good friend and resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick. Of course, he'll be back with us. As will Frank Nabilo. Always enjoy spending time with Frank. Former PGA Tour player David Ogren will also be making a return trip to the show. Looking forward to catching up with David. Then we're going to round out the show with the great golf landscape artist, Linda Hartuff. And folks, if you haven't seen Linda's work, go online to her website, lindahartuff.com. You're going to be amazed at the great paintings and the wonderful landscapes that she does. Looking forward to having her here. So it's going to be a great show, folks. I hope you'll come back and be a part of it with us. You can stream this show as a podcast on a number of great podcasting sites and apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio. If you've got a favorite podcast app, we're probably on it. Folks, thanks again for choosing to listen to the show tonight. I really appreciate the fact that you continue to make Next on the Tee a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.